Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you here today. Uh, my name is Eric. If I have not had the chance to meet you yet, I would love to do that at some point. Uh, I'm a pastor in training here, uh, and I have the opportunity to be able to teach uh, about once a month and, and uh, play music the rest of the time. So, um, yeah, I appreciate the chance to be able to do this. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have one, uh, to Mark chapter 3. I know we just read from Acts. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, but go ahead and turn to Mark 3. We're going to land there in just a second. Um, so last week, just as a quick refresher, we kicked off the first week of our vision series. So big thanks to our announcement guy, Kent, for that. Um, <laughs> um, he took all this time off and then took another week off right after he taught. It's great. <clears throat> it's okay. This was planned a long time ago. Um, so basically what we're doing in this series, we're just taking a few weeks to break down for everybody and go into detail um, just kind of the DNA and the core of who we are as a church. Um, what we believe and why, and, and kind of why we do some of the things we do and, and what we strive to be as a church. Um, and so last week, like I said, we talked about what it means to be Jesus-centered. Um, if you've been around for a while, you probably know our whole mission statement, and you may have guessed that this week, uh, like Kent mentioned a second ago, we are going to be talking about what it means to be family. So this week, we are talking about family, and a lot of that boils down to how we view relationships and how we approach relationships between followers of Jesus and people who are a part of City Church. Um, so if you have been around for a little while, uh, you probably have noticed that we, uh, that we kind of view relationships with other people as a little bit different than the world at large. Um, you may know exactly why that is. You may not really know why that is. Um, and to be honest, some people like it and some people don't. That just is, is the reality of it. But pretty much everybody picks up on the fact that we do view things a little bit differently than the world at large when it comes to relationships. Um, so if you have been coming, you have noticed, uh, you're not really able to put your finger on what exactly it is, hopefully this helps explain some of that, um, and the series as a whole will help unpack some of that for you as well. So what I would love to do, I'm going to pray as we kick things off and then jump in and look at what the scriptures have to say. Um, God, we thank you so much for today, for time to, to come together and um, just be with other, uh, with other people, other followers of you, other people uh, in our city, and our life groups, and just being able to hear from your word and uh, just sing praises to you and just participate in all of the different ways that we get to worship you today. Thank you that we have that chance, and I just pray you bless our time um, and that your spirit would be moving through us and um, we would all have ears to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Mark chapter 3. If you have not gotten there yet, um, I, there's nothing I can do for you. All right, Mark 3, 31. I, I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, starting in verse 31. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here, he's referring to his followers who were with him, here 
are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Um, so what Jesus is talking about here, I think it's pretty clear, uh, but he is talking about and pushing for uh, his followers or just followers of Jesus in general to relate to one another like a biological family would. That is, that is what he is laying out here. It's the metaphor that he is using, that his followers, or in his language, those who do the will of God are like his family members. And let me just say, I get that to some, that idea can sound pretty weird. It, it really can. Maybe a little cultish. I'm not going to lie. So I want to address that because I know that that's where some people's minds can go. The, the family language has been used, uh, misused a lot and has been hijacked by um, some people with some, I would say, pretty, pretty selfish or pretty harmful uh, motivations. And so I want to just say, uh, if this was only our preferred language here at City Church to say that we are family, if it was just up to us, uh, we probably would have bailed on that a while ago. We probably would have been like, yeah, we're going to use a different word. Not, not that. There's too much baggage sometimes. Um, but the thing is, it is not just our language. We didn't just come up with that and decide that's what we want to do. Um, it's the predominant metaphor used in the Bible to talk about our relationship with each other as followers of Jesus. And the idea doesn't stop just with the teachings of Jesus. We see it happen here in Mark. We see it happen other times when Jesus kind of alludes to this, but it happens all throughout the New Testament. Multiple different authors uh, use this same metaphor and continue this metaphor. Um, they actually, they run with it. So much so, in fact, uh, if you look throughout the New Testament, the most common word for, for all, throughout the entire New Testament, the most common word to describe followers of Jesus is adelphoi. It's a Greek word, and it means brothers and sisters. That is what is used more than anything else. It's actually used 342 times in the New Testament to refer to followers of Jesus. And that blows all the other ones way out of the water. Um, so, apparently... When we talk about what it means to, to belong to Jesus or to, to follow Jesus, one of the primary things that has to mean is belonging to the family of God. That is what is, is laid out in Scripture. And the metaphor, like I said, extends further throughout the New Testament. Uh, the Bible describes what happens when people become followers of Jesus, not just that they are uh, part of the family of God. It talks about uh, the, the process of adoption. It's all over the place. I'll just, I'm going to give you a few quick examples um, just real quick, you don't have to turn there, we'll put them, on, put them on the screen. So Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And Romans 8, 14 and 15 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in, in fear again. Excuse me. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So we can see in Scripture and also just in general, there is no situation where a child becomes a son or daughter through adoption and does not also become a brother or sister to other kids in the family. That is not a category that exists. That is, that is just how it works. It's a package deal, right? And our relationship with God operates the same way, the exact same way. When Jesus went to the cross 
when he died for us and rose from the grave, we received the opportunity to become children of God, right? He redeemed us. He purchased us out of our sin and made us his sons and daughters together, right? No take backs. We are family now. That is what that means. Which brings us to to something important to to highlight and talk about, I think. I mentioned a second ago that the idea family, just that word or that the idea in general can stir all kinds of thoughts and emotions for a lot of people. Um, But one thing that we can be certain of is the Bible is not advocating for the church to operate like a modern American family, no matter how great you think yours is, right? That is not what the Bible is calling us to do. I I could list off probably a few reasons why that is, but one very obvious one is that America didn't even almost exist when this was written, right? There was no concept of what that could have meant. So that can't be what Jesus is talking about here. A few thousand years ago, this was not even almost part of the conversation. So what Jesus is actually saying here when he is talking to the people who are around him is that his followers should operate with uh, more like an ancient Mediterranean family because that is who he was talking to and that is what everyone was a part of. So if you aren't familiar with ancient Mediterranean family structure, that's fine. Most people have no reason to be. Uh, It is radically different, though, than how a lot of Americans operate, how a lot of us operate in terms of of family or in terms of society in general. It's two very different ways of thinking. And so in order to understand and apply the Bible in general, and for this specifically, we can't just assume that we know what they're referring to, or we can't just read it into how we perceive the world to be right now. We have to use context. We have to use historical background to make sure that we understand what they are saying on their terms. Um, So one really significant difference uh, is that ancient Mediterranean culture is what sociologists call a strong group society, a strong group society, sometimes called a communal or a collectivist society. The idea was when an ancient Mediterranean person thought about themselves, they thought of themselves primarily as being part of a group. They knew that they belonged to something bigger than themselves. Um, And so to help put this in more perspective, uh, there's a a biblical scholar, his name's Bruce Molina, and he describes strong group society really well. Um, He said, in a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has the priority over the individual member. Now, like I said just a second ago, this is very different to how a lot of us think, uh, especially in modern America, the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about the groups that we belong to. Very different ideas. Some of you may even feel like that just sounds wrong right? Reading that. Uh, And and that's in large part because we are not culturally part of a strong group society at all. We just aren't. That may have been abundantly clear to you just reading that quote. We are considered what is called an individualist society, or to use the same language, it's a weak group society, but that sounds more negative. So individualist society is what we can call it. Um, We see ourselves primarily as individuals, We are primarily an individual, and then secondarily, or occasionally, when we feel like it, we're part of a group. That is more how our culture functions. Uh, Even the most communal of American families probably would not function like the quote we just read. And if they did, it would be exclusive to the walls of their house, probably. 
So thinking about this idea, um, you may be wondering, what societies function like this at all? Like, what cultures would think of themselves in a strong group society? Because we, we don't, in general. And honestly, the answer is pretty much all of them, except for Western, modern Western culture. Like, throughout history, this is kind of how things have gone. A lot of cultures today still operate this way, at least at the core. Um, so, for example, you can look at a bunch of different, a bunch of different examples. We can look at Japanese culture specifically. Um, so, in Japanese, the word for person just uh, if you were referring to a person, it's the exact same word as the word for people, which is more than one person, for those who need the help with that. Um, even at, at the core of the language, if you look at it more literally, the word for person that, that is used more literally translates to in-between others. You are an in-between others. So at the core of the language, even, Japanese culture says to be human is to exist among other people, Right? Or maybe you've heard a common Spanish phrase that we use a lot, I feel like out of context, but uh, mi casa es su casa, right? My house is your house. Uh, here in America, especially in the South, I feel like I've heard this a lot, uh, we have a phrase that's like, my house is my castle. That's a, that's a phrase that people use. Um, my house is where I go to get away from everyone, where I go to be secluded, to be safe, to make sure that no one else can come in unless I say so, right? Mi casa most certainly is not su casa. Not at all. Don't even think about it. I may say it, but I don't mean it. Like, don't, don't, don't do that. Right? It's a bit of a different mindset. This is just, it's, it's not how a lot of us think. And chances are, since we tend to not think like a strong group society, to a lot of us, it sounds odd. It really does, just to be, to be frank. If not a little oppressive, honestly, if we, if we think about it. Some of us may feel like it sounds suffocating or... or as if it would stifle our individual freedoms and our autonomy. And some of that is not completely untrue, right? But it's also worth noting, I think, that individualist thinking uh, does have some pretty significant downsides, right? For example, do you think, possibly, in this hypothetical situation, that maybe some of our issues as a society with loneliness might have something to do with our individualist thinking? I think it could be connected. Right? Modern Western cultures seem to struggle with loneliness and isolation more than any other cultures throughout history. A few years ago, the British government actually appointed a loneliness minister to their, uh, to their government to help address some of the problems that they have seen arise from what they have called an epidemic, a loneliness epidemic. And we've talked about this here on Sundays plenty of times, but I think it's still worth repeating uh, even here in the U.S., the National Institutes of Health uh, has, has linked loneliness and isolation to a widespread list of health effects, including high blood pressure, uh, heart disease, obesity, a weakened immune system, depression, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, and even death. It's a long list. Uh, now, I know loneliness is a complex issue. I am not trying to say it is, it is incredibly simple or it's cut and dry, anything like that. Lots of different things can attribute or contribute to loneliness, but I don't think that it is complete coincidence that the most individualist societies to ever exist also tend to report the highest rates of loneliness. I don't think that's a coincidence, and that is obviously one major drawback to individualist thinking and the way that this society structured like this would work. And I think another significant effect that I have seen, that I have experienced at times, and I've seen in other people, is, uh, is the contribution to anxiety that this way of thinking has. 
some of the biggest decisions that humans make in life, just across all, all cultures, is you know, what to do for a career or what to do for work, uh, where to live in the country or in the world, where should I move, where am I, where am I gonna spend my life, who am I gonna spend my life with, potentially, what large purchases am I going to make, like a house or a car, the list goes on. These are all decisions, big decisions that people make. And in a lot of strong group societies, these decisions are made together with family. Or in some cases, those, those decisions are made on your behalf by the people who are around you. And by contrast, uh, in America, a lot of those th decisions are made in complete isolation, all by yourself. Maybe, maybe we will reach out to a parent or a, a trusted confidant or somebody and we will maybe run some ideas by them, but ultimately we feel individually the full weight of those decisions on our own shoulders. And that, for a lot of people, can generate some extreme anxiety. And it, it makes sense why. Now, again, just like with loneliness, with anxiety as well, there are a lot of contributing factors. That is, I don't think that is a debate that anyone is having. But I am not saying this is the only reason people are anxious. But I would be willing to bet there's at least a connection for a lot of people. And I know there has been for me. So while we may prefer individualist thinking in some ways, whether we would say it out loud or not, it is not like it's a perfect system, right? Um, but my main goal today, let me just say, is not to give arguments for or against how I think American society should function. I am not hosting a debate on strong group versus weak group societies. None of those things. I am simply pointing out when Jesus and the New Testament authors talk about church being a family, they are referring to a strong group family. That is what they are talking about. They are saying we should have the level of commitment and care and priority towards each other, towards other followers of Jesus that an ancient Mediterranean family would have had to, to their own biological family. That is what is being talked about. Right? This is what Jesus had in his mind's eye when he said all that stuff in Mark 3 that we read at the beginning about those who do the will of God. They are his family. This is what he had in mind. And that feels pretty uncomfy to some of us, I think. It does for me sometimes. And in case it doesn't sound uncomfortable to you, uh, I'm going to demonstrate how uncomfortable I think this is. Uh, I'm going to read that same quote I just read by Bruce Molina about strong group thinking, but I'm going to replace the word group with the word church. So here we go. Discomfort pedal to the metal. Let's do it. <clears throat> In a strong church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has the priority over the individual member. Ooh. Yikes. <laughs> right off the bat, uh, let me just say, if that makes you uncomfortable, you are not alone. Right? In some aspect or another, I can, all of us can probably think of some way that we really don't like that idea. Right? Uh, personally, I think it would be easier a lot of days uh, if the Bible said, you know what, to be a Christian, you need to make a private decision by yourself. You can tell other people if you want to, no pressure. As far as relationships with other Christians, try to be nice. Uh, 
Hang out with people who are pretty similar to you, but only if you feel like it. That sounds, I could do that. That's very manageable, right? But to follow Jesus, we have to wrestle with what the scriptures actually say, right? Not what we wish they said. And I think a lot of the discomfort that a lot of us feel is, is honestly because we've seen some pretty, pretty unhealthy examples of communities being built around something other than Jesus, right? We've seen, we've seen groups built around a, a singular person's selfish preferences or maybe built on these large power differentials. And that really quickly becomes dangerous and unhealthy. And I think all of us have seen that happen in some way or another. But the goal that we see in Scripture is, is to see a community that is built on Scripture and built on truth and built on the identity of Jesus first. That is the goal. So what we see in Scripture, we see followers of Jesus being called to treat one another like a strong group ancient Mediterranean family would. When, when Jesus calls the church to function as a family, when he calls his followers brothers and sisters, he is not just saying that we should maybe care about one another a little bit more than we currently do. He doesn't mean maybe tolerate that person a little bit better than you currently do. He is saying that we should radically reorient our lives to be about the good of those around us in God's family. That is what we should be prioritizing. And all that being said, kind of breaking all those things down, to some people, that may just be a deal breaker. It might. To you, that may seem too weird or too invasive or too uncomfortable, and you'd just rather not. And that's fine. Your issues are not with me. Your issues are with the way that Scripture talks about this. I just want to say that very plainly. <laughs> but for those of you who are ready and those of you who have already started this process or are already ingrained in that, people who are, who are ready to be done with hyper-individualism and the loneliness and isolation that comes with it, and the anxiety that it can cause for those who are ready to live into the fullness of life that Jesus came to offer us. We are invited to participate in this together. Right? This, when this happens, when, when we can actually live into this, it is incredibly beautiful. It's amazing. And the reality that we have to acknowledge, like we said, is it is not easy. It is not. And what I want to do is spend the rest of the time this morning just talking through a couple of things that I think are absolutely fundamental to this, for this to exist. They are absolutely necessary for this to happen. This is not an exhaustive list. Uh, this is not every single way that this could play out in your life. This is not a detailed recipe for success. Follow this and you are golden. It's just some things that, that I think without them, at the bare minimum, we will not be able to be this kind of family. And so first, I think that we need to have a commitment to being together. We need to have a commitment to being together. So this may feel overly obvious to you, and that's fine. Uh, none of this is remotely possible if we are not committed to actually be together, right, on a regular basis. We talk about this all the time here, uh, but... The, what I like to say is dead horses aren't going to beat themselves, so I'm going to keep on talking about it. Uh, <laughs> we get this idea from all over the New Testament, 
all over. And this is a core of who we are as a church. I just want to highlight a couple of spots, though, throughout Scripture where this is exactly what it talks about and a commitment to being together. So we're going to start in Hebrews 10. It's going to be on the screen for you. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If the author is saying, you have to be together to encourage one another. You just have to. To spur one another on toward love and good deeds, is what it says. You have got to be together to do that. Now look at Acts chapter 2. It's what we read at the very beginning. The author is describing how the early church is operating. Acts 2, 44 to 47. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day. How many days? Every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. On average, how often do you think people in the early church went without eating? Not often, if they could help it, right? And it's talking about how they, they broke bread together in their homes. This was their, this was their rhythm of life, eating together. They were together all the time. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say that we are required to see everyone else in this room every day. That's not possible, if we're being honest. The way that our life and our culture is structured, that's just not possible, and that's not realistic. And there are different cultural things that could have made that possible back then. So I am not advocating for that. But I do feel comfortable saying, uh, at a bare minimum, if we can't make it a priority to be around other followers of Jesus, to be here on Sundays and be at life group, or be with your community of believers that you have, uh, it's going to be pretty much impossible for us to be this kind of community. It's going to be pretty much impossible to be the kind of community we see in Scripture. If our approach to those things is, you know what, I'll be there as long as there's not something else happening that sounds better. Or uh, that, that's not going to work. Let me just say that. If our mindset is, you know what, uh, I'll be there as long as I'm in the mood to be there. Like, that seems reasonable. It's not going to work. If our mindset is, uh, yeah, I'll be there as long as it hasn't been like a stressful or tiring week so far. It's not going to work. Right? I don't know about you. I can probably count on one hand the number of weeks in the last 10 years that I have not felt like I had a stressful or tiring week, right? If I went to life group only when my week wasn't stressful or tired, I'd go like once a year tops, <laughs> maybe. If we're like, just last week, I, so this is a fun little personal thing. Last week, it's not fun, it was terrible. Uh, we sold a house and I went to go clean it before we sold it and I found out the whole downstairs was completely flooded. It was a nightmare. Uh, it was pretty stressful. So that is not a normal stress level of a week, but this is life. It happens. We all get stressed out. So that can't be the way that we operate. For us to be the family that God has called us to be, we are going to have to commit to being together regularly. We have to. And I, I want to point out, it is not just for the sake of being together. That's not the purpose, right? 
the purpose is not just being in proximity to other people. It brings us to the second point, and I think it's, it's that it needs to be intentional. It needs to be intentional. Right? Being together is vital. I don't think anyone would say, I can be, I can be close to people that I never see. That's, that's hard. Or that I never talk to, never communicate with. But, but the goal is not just being together. It's because of what being together can lead to. That is what we are talking about. This is, this is not an exact mathematical equation, right? I'm in ministry, not math. Uh, but it's about as reliable as any that I have come across. And it's, I would say that relational intimacy in a relationship is almost always directly proportional to the level of intentionality in that relationship, right? Relational intimacy is, is almost always directly proportional to the intentionality in that relationship. I think it's really easy to see this if we look at examples like marriage. This is a very easy example. Um, let's say you got married, and then you said to your spouse, hey, listen, I'd love to do this whole marriage thing with you. I really would. But I would also like to keep my options open, just in case someone better comes along. Right? So let's have like a for now kind of marriage, uh, and then... Also, I'll probably be checking people out pretty consistently, just so you know. That's not going to work, right? That is not at all how that is supposed to work. What do you think that's going to do to the intimacy in that marriage? Destroy it, right? It's not going to do good things. Maybe, maybe you've had someone in your life, we'll make this a, a, a broader example, that you were trying to build a friendship with, that you're trying to, to build a relationship with, and every time that you try to do something or try to hang out, you never know if they're actually going to show up, right? Until they walk through that door, they may not come. Or maybe if they do show up, they're just going to be on their phone the whole time, just waiting for the next best invite. Or they're going to be scrolling through their phone just because they would prefer to do that. How deep does that relationship get? Not very, right? That's a, that's a kiddie pool friendship. That's not very deep. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's because the level of intimacy in a relationship is directly proportional to the level of intentionality, right? The level of intimacy is directly proportional to the level of intentionality in that relationship. So when it comes to community, if you want to maintain a very loose level of intentionality with followers of Jesus, you can totally do that. But I just want you to know that that is going to negatively impact the meaningfulness of those relationships. It will. It, it, it can't happen any other way. You cannot treat people in your life as if they're trivial or expendable and also expect to experience min- meaningful friendships with them. It just won't work. That's just not how, that's not how it functions. And this is something that I have personally consistently struggled with throughout my life. Right? There have been plenty of times that I have let my pride or my insecurity work together to sabotage friendships. I have. I, I really want deep, meaningful relationships. And then I get in this mindset of, you know what, if other people want that, they would relentlessly pursue me. So I'm going to sit back and wait. But I don't even consider that I should be pursuing people intentionally. Right? I think I'll be here whenever they want to pursue me so that I can have these deep friendships. And when those relationships inevitably do not grow deeper than that because of my lack of intentionality, I just assume nobody wants to be my friend. But it's because I am not putting intentionality 
and commitment into those relationships. So it's impossible to get to that depth. One last note on this, and then we'll move on. Um, I think intentionality a lot of time, or more often than not, can be measured in time. I think it can. Uh, I think you guys may have heard about there's a difference between quality time and quantity time, right? Those are, those are two different things sometimes, but what often doesn't get said is that quality time happens in quantity time, right? It happens inside of it. So if you want to develop meaningful friendships and relationships with others, you are going to have to put in intentional time. You're going to have to put that time in to get those relationships to that point. You're going to have to be around them on a regular basis. You're going to have to take an active interest in their life. You're going to have to follow up when they share something that's going on in their life. You're going to have to check in and see how they're doing, what they're struggling with, what's happening in their life that you can celebrate with them. That takes sacrifice, and that takes intentionality. And when we do actually take the time to be with people and to be invested in their life, those family relationships we just talked about start to happen. Right? We have to remember these relationships can happen naturally. They can, but they cannot or they don't happen automatically. Right? They can happen naturally, but they don't happen automatically. Now, at this point, uh, you might be asking a simple question, or at least I was when I was writing this, uh, writing this up. Why? Right? why? Why should I prioritize other people like that? Why should I actively seek out these kinds of relationships? That sounds pretty difficult and draining. And you're not wrong, right? It is difficult, and sometimes it is draining. But it is so beautiful to see what happens and to, and to see how life-changing it is to experience this and to, and to watch as it happens. So we recently had, uh, we call it family vacation. It's when we take uh, City Church members and we, we go to a massive cabin in Gatlinburg and we just hang out for the weekend as, as family. That's the goal. Um, and we had time where we had people sit around and, and we just said, we want to take time to just share stories of ways that we have seen Jesus work through our community. And there was, I don't think, a dry eye in the room, right? And not because people were sad about it. Like everyone, there's just tears of joy hearing story after story of the ways that, that this has worked out in people's lives, being family to one another because of Jesus. Uh, we had people share about this depth of loneliness that they experienced in their life, this isolation that they experienced, that they felt, and the struggles that came with that. And, and then they shared how they've encountered people in a community that welcomed them in, that pursued them, that showed them the love of Jesus that was intentional with them in ways that they had never seen, never experienced before, it changed their life. We, we had single people who were sharing stories of being invited to live with other families. No strings attached. Just, hey, come, come live with us. Be a part of our family for now, for this season. Right? Particip- our holiday traditions are your holiday traditions. Come celebrate Christmas with us. 
People shared stories of how they were welcomed so warmly, they said it felt like they have always been here. It felt like they have always been a part of that family. People who have experienced hurt, who have been outsiders, or have felt like outsiders, becoming part of a family and feeling like an insider, a place they know that they can welcome others freely, the same way that they were welcomed. We had people talk about how they feel so much relief and peace in their life, knowing that their children are being loved on and cared for by the people around them just as much as if they were doing it themselves. Actively, actively pursuing and caring for these kids. We even had people sharing stories about how they've seen their kids start to embody these things that they've seen. Right? Actively going out of their way when they see another kid struggling or having a hard time feeling included. Extending that same love to them because they've seen it modeled. I just heard a story from one of our life groups after the, the recent uh, racially motivated shootings in, in New York where uh, the life group got together and they raised money for a, a self-care day for the, the black brothers and sisters in their life group. They said, hey, we see you, we love you, we, we hurt with you, and we just want to treat you to a day to just, to just relax as much as we can help you do that. And we want to pay for everything. Right? And they said every single person in their group contributed because they said that is a priority for us, caring for the people in their group. That's because they were operating as a family. Like, how awesome is that? So what I want to do um, today, I want to just wrap things up here. Um, and I want to end with just a few practical questions. Practical questions for us to think on this week. This is not just going to be something that I think you can fully think on and process today. Um, but if you feel like you are, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus... I want you to, to think about these questions this week and, and talk about them uh, in life group. We're going to have that uh, be a part of, of life group for, for some of our groups this week as well. Um, so feel free to write these down if that is helpful for you or uh, if you want, you can just uh, sit and, and, and think through them, consider them as I list them out, um, whatever's most helpful for you. But I want us all to take time to think about these things as we end. Um, first, do you have community? Do you have community? Right? Or, or is the default rhythm of your life isolation? Right? And just to be abundantly clear, I don't mean, do you know some Christians? That's not what I'm asking. We live in Tennessee. All of us know some Christians. <laughs> right? I mean, is your life regularly overlapping with theirs? Do they know you? Do they know your journey as a follower of Jesus? If not, we mention this every week, and we, we do it because we think it matters, that we would love to connect you with a group filled with other followers of Jesus who, who can learn to be that with you and for you. Are you committed to being together? Do you have community? Next question is, are you intentional in your community? Are you intentional in your community? For those of you who do have community, who, who are in life groups, who have that community with other followers of Jesus, are you actually intentional with some of those people? 
Are there times when you love them and serve them and are there for them, even when it would be a lot easier not to? Are there times when you show up, even when you don't want to? Right? If someone just casually combed through uh, your schedule on an average week, would they conclude that time with other followers of Jesus is a priority for you or not? Right? Are you intentional with your community? And the last thing I want us to think about is, uh, are you willing to be committed to and intentional with people who differ from you? Are you willing to be committed to and intentional with people who differ from you? Right? Do the ideas of commitment and intentionality sound pretty doable to you only if the other person is just like me? Right? Or only if I just really easily click with that person? Or only if I have all the same interests, all the same preferences, only the same political affiliation? Do you have a person or a group of people in your mind that when you think of it, I could do all of this unless it's with them, right? I just want everyone to take a second as we end. Um, think about just how little Jesus, who is God in the flesh, has in common with broken sinners, Right? In his perfection, we could not be more different from him. Yet he still chose to be more committed and more intentional with us than we could ever be with anyone else. Right? He was willing to give everything to be in relationship with us. And that is the posture that we're looking to as an example. We're looking to the posture of Jesus and how he was willing to give up everything he committed time. He committed intentionality. He ultimately loved his enemies by coming for us. We were his enemies in our sin. He showed us whatever needed to be done. Whatever needed to be done to bridge the gap was worth it. He put that on display for us, and he invites us to do that same thing to extend that same love, that same intentionality to other people. Not just for the sake of it, but because it is absolutely worth it, because it will help form us into the family that Jesus is talking about. And that is a, a beautiful picture that we get to live in. So let's pray together. God, we uh, first just want to thank you. Um, you say it all the time, um, but we don't ever want to grow tired of saying it. Um, just thank you for the lengths that you were willing to go to to pursue us. Um, that there was, there was nothing that was going to stop you from, from making a way to be in relationship with us again. Um, thank you that you relentlessly chase us down, that you are there uh, and pursuing us no matter how different from you we may be. Um, yeah, it's just a, a, an amazing reality that we get to live 
in. And I, I pray that it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop in our own hearts or in our own lives. That we wouldn't say, hey, this is great that I've got to experience this with you, God, and I would, I would like to just keep it between us. Um, I just pray that, that the reality of what you have done for us and the love that you have shown us and extended to us would just saturate every part of our lives. That there would be no part of our life that is untouched by, by that reality. That we would know the lengths that you went to to, to be to be family with us and that that would motivate the way that we look to other followers of Jesus and the ways that we can be family with them and that we would look to others uh, and, and be praying for and pursuing those who are not in relationship with you yet because we know that it's worth it to experience life with you. And I just, I pray in the times when, it, uh, when, it's, when it's really hard to do that that we would be reminded of, of, of the way that you pursued us, that we would consistently be able to look to you as an example when it's hard, when it's stressful, when it's tiring, when it doesn't feel like it's reciprocated, um, that we would look to you yeah, for, for our motivation, for our, for our encouragement, we look to you for truth, that we would point others to you for truth. And thank you so much that we get to participate in this together, that the way that you designed life was to function with others in, in that family relationship that you created. And I pray that more and more people would come to experience that and experience the joy that comes from being adopted into your family. And that those of us who are a part of your family would be able to celebrate that reality when it happens for people. That we would be able to welcome people in um, as if they were a, a brother or sister to us. Because that is what they, they can become through, through you and through what you did for us. I pray we can be continually reminded of that truth and motivated to, to extend that love that we have experienced um, from you to others. Thank you so much that we get to do this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.